0: And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. John Meacham has one of those resumes that just makes you want to shake your head. A prodigy in journalism, a Pulitzer Prize-winning historian and biographer, television commentator and part-time professor of theology, and he's still in the prime of life. I sat down with Meacham yesterday as the hours ticked down on the campaign to talk about this moment and its meaning and much more. Here's that conversation. John Meacham, it's great to see you at at an auspicious time for our country. I thought, who better to sit down with uh, than than someone who uh, chronicles history um, so welcome and tell me, uh, tell me, tell me about the moment we're in.
1: It's, I hope it's auspicious. Uh, that is a more of a, uh, optimistic and, uh, forward leaning. You know, but I, I say
0: auspicious because there is a certain majesty to the American sure. people raising their voices and sure. this, this, uh, you know, I see these, um, I see these images of all these people waiting online sometimes for eight, nine hours to make sure that their vote is is counted. And um, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm as inspired by it as I was when I started my passion for this as a little boy.
1: Yeah. Well, I was uh, six when I first went to a polling place. My grandfather was on the ballot in a municipal election in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And the spring of 1975. And my main memory of election night was they had these really nice square cupcakes (laughs) (laughs) that were really good. Uh, But I had the same reaction. I used to go to the fire hall uh, at the foot of uh, the part of Missionary Ridge where Braxton Bragg's headquarters had been on the top of the hill. The Confederate
0: general who got
1: run out of there by Grant. and Precisely. I grew up 800 yards from... The spot at which Sherman was able to go into Georgia, and about three miles away from Chief John Ross's house. So to me, history was always quite tactile. You know, it was it was right there. Uh, there is a majesty to this, uh, and you you don't have to be as hopelessly romantic as the two of us are <laughs> to appreciate the remarkable and durable experiment. Uh, my my slight caveat is. I like you believe this is an existential moment. Uh, I think the character of our democratic, lowercase D institutions is very much on on the ballot. And I wasn't, and for whatever it's worth, I wasn't a doomsayer four years ago. I understood, uh, at least intellectually. That enough people believed, as it turned out, 46.1% of them believed that the consensus that had run really from FDR through Obama was not commensurate with what they wanted. And they, it wasn't being, in their view, responsive to, to their needs. And they were willing to take a flyer on uh, a wildly unconventional president. But the evidence of the last three years is that i don't see how there is a rational pro-trump case at this point uh if you're if you are a republican who believes in lower taxes believes in less regulation uh, and is worried about judges you're really voting against a caricature of biden seems to me, more than you can rationally vote for the president. Now, you don't need me to be a pundit. What I think that means historically- Well, that's one of your 16
0: hats, so you might as well go ahead. <laughs>
1: but, but what I think is, to me, what's so fascinating is, and it's, it's a two-pronged point, and, and, and you so assess the validity of these statements as we ask students mm-hmm. to do. Um, one is Trump is not an aberration. There are perennial forces in American life of populism, racism, xenophobia, nativism, extremism that ebb and flow at various points of stress. So in that sense, he's not unique. He's simply the fullest manifestation and the most successful electorally such figure in American history. So that's one thing. The second thing, though, is this is where he's different, I think, is I really do believe, and I've talked to your old boss about this, as Mm -hmm. well as Clinton and, and, and Bush 43, and they all basically agreed with it, that from 1933 to 2017, we lived in a country that was essentially governed by a figurative conversation between FDR and Reagan, and every American president was playing on a field marked by those two uh, poles or buoys. Pick your, pick your image. You debated whether to raise or lower the role of the state in the marketplace. You debated the nature of projections of force against commonly agreed-upon foes and rivals. But it was a coherent, recognizable conversation and set of responses to familiar challenges. This is not the last three and a half years is not a sequential chapter in that conversation. And I think what's what's so important this week is the vices and the virtues of a restoration of that conversation may be what we're dealing with if Vice President Biden wins. He is a figure totally conversant and fluent in that consensus conversation, Mm -hmm. and that has many virtues, but it also has some vices, and he's going to have immense pressure from the left. He's going to have an organized machinery of conflict of opposition that you know better than anybody will just start the moment this is over, if, if in fact it ends well uh, and ends cleanly, saying that he is a proto-socialist mm-hmm. who is a kind of Trojan horse. And it's going to be immensely hard, it seems to me. I don't envy – I never thought I would say this, but I don't envy – if he becomes the 46th president, he faces – as difficult a task, I think, as uh, anybody since FDR, because yeah. of these structures. We used shifts. to say that about Barack Obama in two thousand and nine, yeah. and
0: it's it's like those baseball. I say it's like those baseball records. You know, uh, on, in the steroid era, you, they don't last very long. Yeah. Uh, but he is clearly, I think, going to have a, a diff, more difficult hand, even than we did, because the virus will still be with us. The economy is going to be. Uh, uh, we're we're uh, you know worn by it still and um and there are so many scars from this last uh 4 years but i, I would just you, you know since you threw it out there i would just uh, say um it's important to recognize this isn't just an american phenomenon it is is most uh it is most evident here because of who we are and how we think of ourselves and because we are a dominant player in the world. But when you look at what's happening in Europe, for example, uh, we've mm. seen the emergence of these same kinds of forces. Uh, and I do think, you know, there there are a few things, John. One is um, the, um, uh, you know, we, have, we are change driven by technology is coming at us at warp speed. And with it has come uh it comes at the same time as demographic change uh and um so uh that has created economic conditions cultural conditions that have given uh that have made it easier to give rise to trump the other thing is and we have to be candid about it uh you know trump uh drew a good hand in 2016 hillary clinton you know uh partly uh, because of things she did and a lot because of what things, things that were done to her was a very unpopular candidate by the end of that election. And Mm -hmm. maybe the only person he could have beaten on that particular day. Um, So, um, but, but I don't, I think the real question is, does, does capitalism, does democracy respond to the pressures that people are feeling from this warp speed change that's coming our way and you know one of the one of the mismatches we have uh, is between uh, the, the pace of change which comes faster and faster and the design of our government which is meant to move slowly when the country's divided mm-hmm. so you have a, a government that doesn't seem agile uh, at a time when people are hungry for some sort of ballast uh, you know in the storm
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. The last two moments where that point was made with conviction and uh, clarity was the turn of the 20th century uh, as the progressive era took shape Mm -hmm. as a response to industrialization and really the period from 1920 or so uh, through the New Deal. And Morrow Lindbergh wrote a book. Called the wave of the future. And it's Charles Lindbergh's wife. And in her yes. view, the wave of the future was not democratic capitalism, but was European style strongman uh, totalitarianism because the world was moving so rapidly that an 18th century structure was not commensurate with the challenges of uh, a shifting economy. 1920 yeah. was the first period, first census, where more of us lived in cities than on farms. Uh, the, the immigration was way up. Uh, the Ku Klux Klan had been refounded in 1915. As you remember, You, I don't think you were there, but in 1924. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. Uh, yeah, I think you were a page maybe. Uh, <laughs> the 1924 Democratic Convention went to 103 ballots because there were 347 Klan delegates who wouldn't vote for Al Smith because he was an Irish Catholic. Yeah, right. And what did we do in 24? We restricted immigration. We raised tariffs. Uh, the other thing, by the way, and no John one John, let me just
0: interrupt you and tell you, my father was an immigrant from Eastern Europe. He got here in 1922. If he had arrived, if he had tried to come just a few years later, likely yep. he wouldn't have been admitted to the country. Exactly. Um, I think about it all the time in these immigration debates because I'd like to think that our family has contributed something sure. to the country- and uh i think about all the other people like us and uh you know we very nearly didn't get that
1: opportunity and the 20 the 1924 uh immigration caps are what was the prevailing law in the late 1930s yeah and that was what fdr cited in not allowing in more refugees from hitler's right yes uh and it really wasn't undone until it was a little bit under uh, in the Truman years. But chiefly, 65. which was, I William would argue Johnson. No. Uh, that the Immigra- Immigration and Nationality Act of 1965, along with the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, really created modern America. That is that, you know, we debate 1619 and 1776 and 1787. I think the America you're seeing These early voting lines, the America that uh, is all around us right now is 55 years old. Because my native region, we didn't have a a presidential election in the American South until 1968 that didn't have some form of apartheid. Right. So in my lifetime, right? So, uh, you know, this this is a very recent uh experiment in, in multi-ethnic democracy. It, it's
0: also one of the it is one of the forces that you know we have to we have to navigate um because the, the that change frankly the republican party um uh, operationalized those divisions to their sure that that's how your region fell into the republican column was resistance to those changes and trump Uh, Has gone farther than anyone probably since George Wallace in exploiting them. Uh, But it's one of the things you know. I I think that you know, you know, I'm of the view that uh, this diversity is a great strength. But um, uh, but these are the forces. I got to ask you something about this. You um, and I know that you probably um, uh, heard some commentary on this but uh you're a commentator and a historian and many other things but you were on television the night of the first presidential debate and um uh you you said of trump's uh performance i think it was the first debate yeah Uh, i think trump did himself good with his base tonight the question for america is how big that base is there is a lizard brain in this country. Donald Trump yeah. is the product of the white man, of the white man's the anguished, nervous white guy's lizard brain, and um, it had a little bit of an echo of uh, of the deplorables uh, of Hillary's kind of uh, comment back then, or at least that's the way um, you yeah. know some folks mentioned it to me, and I, I you know, and I know. Would just explain explain sure. yourself,
1: will you? I'm happy, delighted. It was the second debate, by the way, and oh, it was so the second debate, yeah, uh, which was here in Nashville, and I went to it, uh, which I'd never done. I'd never been in a general election debate in the hall, yeah. and uh, I don't think I'll ever go back because it was so different, uh, and it, it was interesting but not particularly useful. Uh, so I well, took I'll my tell 12. you what
0: it's better than it's better than being. Uh, an advisor to the candidate, <laughs> and pacing wildly and dying yeah. with every word that's
1: spoken. But uh, that I that I am sure of. So here is what happened: and my twelve year old and I were there. And frankly, in the room, Donald Trump won that debate. He owned the room. It was a alpha male performance. Uh, the vice president appeared again in the room. Defensive and not particularly responsive to a series of, if incoherent, at least well launched attacks. Does that distinction make sense? Yeah. And I was not trying to be clever. And that's the thing I always check in with on myself. Uh, Was I, you know, was I going for a laugh? Was I going for, you know, oh, he's cute? You know, he's, you know, he's no, it it wasn't that I genuinely believe that Donald Trump would not be president without the elemental concerns of a large number of largely white men who, to go to your point a moment ago, believe that history is slipping away from them. loss of place and they d- the diversity that is easy to celebrate if you're on the right side of the economic equation is less easy uh to confront and manage and decide what you think about it uh if you're on the other side and that's—I'm not saying that's good, but that's true. It's just accurate that that's that's what unfolds, and I think it's elemental. Now, if I had said uh, this is an, uh, that that Trump is because he is a product of it, it's it's not as though the establishment Republican Party of low taxes and less regulation got together in early '16 and said, "Hey, I know, let's have Donald Trump run." Yeah. Right. Yeah, he was not an invited guest. He came out of the elemental part, and then yeah they I mean let but just for context, you know he he
0: he he knows how to exploit that uh he knows how to exploit that sense of loss and that sense of grievance and that sl- sense of resentment he came
1: out of wealth and privilege mm-hmm, yeah, I don't think it's like the deplorables thing i I think honestly it's more like uh. The Obama, was it Pennsylvania? The clings of their guns. Yeah, that wasn't
0: good either, actually.
1: Yeah, this is, so this is, actually. I want your counsel on this. So I don't think you would have asked me that question. I don't think you were, you were probably on TV at that hour. Um, I got no, there was nothing about it. So it was delivered at about, say, midnight Eastern time. At 10 o'clock, the ne- nothing happened. And and again, I wasn't trying to be clever. I just thought. Uh-huh. And if anybody thinks that Donald Trump does not benefit from white grievance, then we, they should yeah, just turn this it off. It wasn't right. the
0: point. It was just the lizard.
1: Right. Brain. So what I sh- So my regret is that I, w- I w- provided fuel for the Fox machine because this did not become noticed. Until Laura Ingram the next Uh, night put a chyron on Meacham calls Trump supporters lizard brains, which I did not do. Yeah, but it went because there is this perpetual machinery of conflict that requires any kind of fuel. It doesn't matter what it is. And I provided some fuel. Yeah. And so I regret that. Uh. And if I'd said that he was a product of elemental anxieties about economic place and culture and identity, it would have been predictably uh, uh, kind of unclear and nobody would have noticed. <laughs> so I'm going to go back to being predictably unclear.
0: Well, this is what happens when you when the historian dips his toe into, into this world, you know?
1: Yeah. Let me ask you something about that. I, I do. I,
0: I do. Look, John, before okay. you start- I do. I have a sensitivity to this because I do believe that if we are going to, if we are going to um, move beyond this painful period, then it's going to require a real effort to um, to understand each other, and so avoiding making judge, judgments or sounding judgmental, I think is 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 part of that. And one of the reasons Biden, if Biden wins on Tuesday, uh, if he wins it's partly because um he comes from a place that is culturally um more familiar to uh to some of these Trump voters some of whom are not going to vote for Trump i mean the reason trump i've said it a million times here and elsewhere the reason trump didn't want biden was because he's he was culturally inconvenient uh he he yeah. is a bridge to that group of voters but so that's my only point i don't want to beat this thing to death, nor do I, nor am I, you know, um, I didn't, I, I didn't make the point to uh, prosecute you for it, but it's an interesting discussion.
1: I'm prosecuting myself or I'm trying myself, but I'm not prosecuting myself yes. because I do think this is important for exactly the reason you just said. My whole goal is to, cause the world doesn't need one more political commentator on the, the tweet of the hour. What I have tried very hard to do for a long time is discuss the present implicitly by alluding to the facts and drama of the past. Because I think if you talk about things in historical terms, you widen the aperture for possible Mm buy-in. Folks on the right like the past. Folks on the left like data. And the only data we have in human experience is history. And so I've tried very hard to try to be a source of light and not heat. Mm -hmm. And this is one where, like Mr. Magoo, I drove straight into the ladder. (laughs) Uh, And I I love talking to you about it because I think it's important. And um, uh, I... I made the conversation a little worse and my whole goal is to make it a little better. And so I I regret that.
0: We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now back to the show. We talked about race a little bit earlier, and I, I want to ask you about your perspective. You you you, you alluded to the fact that y- you come from uh, the from Chattanooga and the hills of a uh, chat Chattanooga, and you talked about the Civil War history that drew you in, and so on. Um, you you also you 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 grew you were born just a little bit after the the Civil Rights Movement was in its uh, heyday, but um, you know, this is still a, um, an open wound in our history and so on. And I'm just wondering as a child, um, how you processed the issue of, of race. And I, I, I want to ask it in the context of the book you just wrote about, about John Lewis, who incidentally got his start in in Tennessee, uh, his civil rights career began down there at lunch counter uh, sit-ins. Yeah. So,
1: yeah, he he came here uh, from Troy in uh, the fall of 1957 to be a uh, become a student at American Baptist Theological Seminary, uh, which is now American Baptist College, right across the Cumberland River. I'm actually teaching there this semester. Uh, yeah. It's this little uh, little school, about 60 students now, uh, and. One of the many biblical notes in John's life is he went to a hill and received a new commission and came down and and brought the truth to us. Um, I loved him. Uh, And my first significant memory of what we would think of as race in America was the summer of 1980. Uh, It was the third week of July, I think. And in April of 1980, on April 19th, 1980, three Ku Klux Klansmen had a shotgun and drove through the downtown section of of Chattanooga and opened fire, wounding ultimately four women, Uh, did not kill them miraculously. And then an all-white jury in the Hamilton County Court of Tennessee let two of them off all together and slapped the wrists of the other with kind of a workhouse sentence for a while. That verdict came down in the summer. The city went into riots and I remember being at home watching smoke coming up from downtown where in Alton Park, uh, neighborhood of Chattanooga, uh, where people were in... Dr. King's phrase, a riot is the language of the unheard. And they felt not only unheard, but explicitly rebuked because you, the criminal justice system had said, this isn't a big enough deal to take seriously. And I remember that entirely. President Carter sent Jesse Jackson. Thank goodness
0: we're past that now.
1: Well, there you go. See? So I was 11 years old. Um, And it's interesting, again, historically, if you go back and look, there was a big uptick in explicit Klan activity in the late 70s. And I was sort of trying to figure – I looked into this case recently, and I was trying to think about it. And I think that's because the – effects of integration were becoming real. It was it was moving from the theoretical to the real. And so you had folks who felt that they were being somehow replaced. The, mm-hmm. the chant, remember, from Charlottesville. Yeah. Um, and so I, I don't know uh, where I would have been. I was born in 69. I don't know where I would have been on civil rights if I'd been born in 39. Um, I'd like to think that I would have been With Lewis and King and C. T. Vivian, but I don't know. Uh, You know, there the reason this took so long here, and the reason systemic racism persists, is because it's really easy to be retrospectively virtuous, and it's harder to be virtuous in real time. And so, one of the reasons I I endorse Biden, I spoke at the convention, yes. uh, was because I think this is an inflection point and I don't know where I would have been then, but I know where I want to be now.
0: Talk about race and history because you've written splendid biographies of two, uh, uh, of, well, several presidents, but, uh, well-known books about, uh, Thomas Jefferson and Andrew Jackson um and you know their role um on on this issue of race uh in different ways has, has you know animates a lot of the discussion now
1: absolutely uh they are vivid emblems of the best of us and the worst of us and this is going to sound like your old boss a little bit uh <laughs> my my view is my whole view of history is Because it's it's kind of my view of human nature, which sounds very grand. But uh, you asked. Uh, I know that in the course of a day, I have my better angels doing battle against my worst instincts, and some days, fifty-one percent of the time, the better angels win. That's not very often. I don't have lots of days like that. I think the country is the same way, because a republic is the sum of its parts. We are a human organism. We're not a clinical, uh, republic. A uh, republic is human. And in fact, the constitution for all of its failings is entirely designed to make change hard because they assumed in a Calvinistic way that every time we tried to do something, you would probably be wrong. More often than not, it would be wrong. And so, um, I think that racism in in, in the lives of, of Jefferson and Jackson is, is like that. They were creatures of their time, but that's not to excuse them because there were contrary, countervailing voices. I think you have to look at these figures as part of not simply their era, which again sounds kind of like a, a cop-out, but you have to look at them as... Democratic lowercase d politicians and what does their action what does their record tell us about where the country was because one of the things I don't like about uh, blowing down all the monuments of every of every kind uh, is because they were complicit in and uh, defenders of white supremacy which they surely were the problem is if you take down if you, if if you stop contemplating figures who had views that were reprehensible you actually let the rest of us off the hook right they were democratic politicians are makers of manners and morals but they're also mirrors of maker of manners and morals and so if you were for instance to cancel Andrew Jackson, I think that makes, it gives you a frisson of virtue, of virtuous conduct, but it doesn't change the fact that huge swaths of this country are on land that we took from the native peoples. So in a way you want to send, one might want to send Jackson to the cross and then think that that sacrifice atones for everything. I don't think that's true. Same with Jefferson and, and slavery. Slavery.
0: Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I, I guess the answer is to try and reconcile with the legacy of all of that and try and make good on that, which is the debate, the, the more constructive debate, which is how do we fully confront that legacy and what do we do about it?
1: I see my view again, grand phrase, but that the, the moral utility of history is not mindless celebration or blanket condemnation. It's an engagement with human beings. And if the best people, if the most successful people of a given era could be so woefully wrong about such fundamental questions of identity, then what are we missing? And can't we use history as a kind of exemplum that is a case study. All right, Thomas Jefferson wrote the most important sentence ever originally rendered in English, right? That all men were created equal. I am careful about that hyperbole because, you know, the old story about the Texas uh, governor candidate who was running who was against teaching Spanish in the public schools and said, if English was good enough for our Lord Jesus Christ, it's good enough for Texas. <laughs> yeah. So I'm, I'm careful about that. <laughs> but, uh, but he wrote that sentence. It has changed more lives around the world. It continues to do so. And yet uh, he never – he gave up because of political, economic, and cultural convenience on the issue of, of human enslavement. So what are we now – not addressing because of political economic and cultural convenience and i think that i think that's where history can help us yeah i just
0: also think that there is a there is a an obvious and continuing wound that we haven't fully uh, addressed and it is expressing itself in not just the policing issue but So many different aspects of our life in this in the form of systemic racism that, you know, we thought maybe we had confronted and in the 60s with the Civil Rights Acts and so on. But um, it's more complicated than that.
1: Well, don't you think and I want to hear you on this. Don't you think that a lot of people thought that November 2008 had fixed it?
0: Yeah, but not us. I don't think any no, of agree us with that, who but, but. worked for him, uh, for Barack Obama, believed that somehow. I mean, we felt it was a step forward, and I think it was a step forward. And all you have to do is, is, is look in the, the eyes of young people, who, um, young black Americans who saw uh, him get elected president and, and what that meant to them. Uh, yes, it made a difference. Um, but, uh, but not not the notion that we were going to enter a post-racial society. In fact, I think that it probably brought to the fore, you know, these reactionary forces yep. that that Trump has exploited, and we saw it before that election with uh, at those Sarah Palin rallies. So we knew, you know, and uh, I don't think any. Person of color in this country believe that their lives would be transformed overnight because this president uh, got elected. It was a step forward, and that is how we make progress. We make progress in yeah. in 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 that in not all at once. But um, I have to confess, John, and I wrote a piece in the Post about this. I thought I was pretty aware of these issues. I've been around them all my life. I spent a lot of my life trying to elect. People of color to positions that had never been held by people of color before—not just the presidency, but governorships, mayoralties, mm-hmm. and so on. Um, and I, I had to—I bra- had the bracing realization that um, I, I, n- I never thought hard enough about what it was like to walk in someone else's shoes, to understand um, what it was like to to know with some Mm -hmm. certainty that at some point you would get stopped by police Mm -hmm. to know that there'd be certain assumptions about you that, uh, you know, and I think a lot of Americans got that awareness that, uh, derive more awareness from what happened this summer. The question is then what do we do with it? Do we just, do we congratulate ourselves for our heightened awareness or does it translate into action? And I think that has, uh, that remains to be seen we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now back to the show. We can't have this whole conversation without me asking you about your, your, your extraordinary journey because you started uh, in journalism at the, chattanooga times and then you had this meteoric rise you became the editor of the washington monthly uh and at 29 years old you became uh, the uh managing editor uh of newsweek yep. uh and um and and then you started writing your books um tell me tell me about your transformation from a journalist to historian and the link and the and the the kind of thread that runs through everything you do which is storytelling
1: it is narrative and uh and thank you um i um i did my first book uh which was a, a portrait of the friendship between roosevelt and churchill yeah uh, great book thank you uh because I was so consumed with although now a weekly deadline seems like you know a quarterly uh, but um but one of the things that fascinated me as I was in journalism which I loved uh was the easy assumption that which which journalists tend to make that the present was always unequal to the past. That is the, the sense that, you know, this president or this speaker or this governor, if only they could be like X or Y, we'd be better off, right? There was a kind of reflexive hostility. And it was, to some extent, it was based on a nostalgic view of history, and so the explicit question that I wanted to answer uh, when I started working on Roosevelt and Churchill was, you know, I bet if we had been sitting around at Christmas 1941, if we had been covering Roosevelt and Churchill's first great wartime summit, I bet we would be thinking, gosh, I wish they could be like Wilson and Lloyd George <laughs> and damned if it wasn't true. Uh you know, the, here's, here's my favorite example of this. The coverage of D-Day in June of 1944 was not the liberation of a continent begins. It was why didn't they know about the hedgerows, right? And so to me, that was kind of a revelation because it meant that it meant two things. One is that nostalgia is a dangerous narcotic. Because if we lionize the past, we foreclose its possibility of teaching us. Because if they were so great, if they were on Rushmore, if they were from Olympus, then that makes them more remote. But if they were human beings who were uh, who got some things right and some things wrong, like Franklin Roosevelt, you know, Franklin Roosevelt managed an isolationist country, got us into a position to win, and then issues Executive Order 9066 in turning Japanese Americans of Japanese descent. I don't even like calling them Japanese Americans. They were Americans who happened to be of Japanese descent. Um, and I think that knowing that story is not doesn't knock Roosevelt down. What it does is it recovers him as he was. And if a, if if that's the best we can be, then we need to hold that up, that we need to tell that story. All the way to the book I just published on John Lewis. That was not an original story. John himself told the story a lot. But I was standing with him on the Pettus Bridge in March, knew it would be his last time there, and I was thinking literally lord there are so many millions of people who profess an allegiance to religious principles and yet the gap between profession and practice is so vast john lewis closed that gap more than anyone else i've known in my life. i knew him for 28 years and i wanted to tell the story of a religiously inspired warrior for justice, because—and this is not an original insight—because Homer knew it, and the writers of the Bible knew it. Story is the best way to reach people, and if you could hold, it seemed to me that if you could hold up John Lewis, hang a lantern on him, what pick your pick your metaphor. It was a vitally important story to tell in this moment because it was about somebody who didn't just assume that the arc of a moral universe would bend toward justice. He insisted that it swerve. And what President Obama and Reinhold Niebuhr and and others have articulated is this notion that If we work hard enough, we get there, and that's true. But you got it because of the the nature of countervailing political and historical forces. You've got to have John Lewis. You've got to have those folks, and I think he was a saint by in a classical definition, willing to die, uh, suffered for the faith, never sold out. Um, And so I, uh, what 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 links my work. which sounds horribly self-referential, but it is this notion, I think, that it is miraculous that we have as many moments of transcendence where both the leaders and the led put the common good ahead of personal gain. And perfection cannot be the expectation. Just doing as best we can and hoping we get it right is the more Rational disposition.
0: Yeah, I, let me say two things. One is I uh, I had the great gift of doing my uh, my Axe Files TV show with John Lewis, and it was one of the most moving experiences yeah, that, I've that I've ever yeah. had. He 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 is he was such a palpably good and decent and optimistic person, despite all that he had been through it was really a tonic in these times to spend spend time with him the second thing i'd say is about uh, roosevelt churchill eric larson wrote a great book this year yeah. about the about 1940 london and and i thought was a very ground level profile of churchill as a human mm-hmm. being um And yeah, these were imperfect people, but they were great leaders, and they were great leaders in part because they understood their duty and their responsibility and where they wanted to lead. They also understood these processes of, you know, human beings are imperfect, uh, and as a result, democracies are imperfect. And both Churchill and Roosevelt, among their gifts, were that pragmatic sense of how to move things forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, that a leader has to have. I mean, among the criticisms that I have of this president is um, he doesn't have any goals beyond furtherance of his own power and interests, and so, and you know, not to mention the wanton disregard for democratic institutions. One of the other presidents that you wrote about was a more contemporary president, who you wrote about, uh, George Herbert Walker Bush, and. Um, such an interesting character. I mean, uh, President Obama had huge, yep. uh, huge admiration uh, for him uh, and the way he uh, conducted himself, uh, particularly on the global, mm-hmm. uh, on the global scene. And you know, he served the country in so many different ways, and uh, obviously had great reverence for the institutions of democracy. Uh, and so there was that part of him. He also got elected. In maybe the most brutal campaign for president of our lifetimes, uh, Willie Horton and all of that. How did the how did those two things coexist? The the statesman and and the guy who was at the at yeah. the top of that yeah. apparatus that Roger Ailes and others ran.
1: Fantastic question, and it, it's the it's the motive question of 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 the book I wrote. Um, I did that book because. President Bush gave me his diaries. Uh, he kept a presidential diary. He dictated two or three times a week into a tape recorder. Uh, he threw open the doors of the family and everything with no conditions. So he didn't read the book beforehand. Uh, uh, I had the wild experience actually of reading parts of it to him once it was mm-hmm. published. Um which was, uh, which was totally fascinating. The, this, President Bush is a marvelous embodiment, an example of all the f- things we've been talking about, because, as you say, he pursued power in a relentless and not always admirable way. The test for me as a biographer and ultimately, for him, I believe, as a man, was less about the means than the ends. And what set George H. W. Bush apart from so many similar p- folks in in, in similar contexts is that his end was not winning the election. His end was what did he use the power he had amassed for. And that can sound justifying, right? Or maybe like an excuse. But think about the three decisions he made that helped cost him Hmm. re-election. He conducted a very limited war against Saddam Hussein. We forget that the invasion of Kuwait was seen at the time as a possible domino into uh, a fall of Saudi Arabia. Uh, he did not believe he could trust, uh, frankly, the Arab world to uh, check Saddam. So he thought he had to do it, but he defined the mission. He sent the troops. He did it. He came home. Uh, and he knew that would cost him. He knew that it wasn't, that there wasn't a kind of battleship Missouri moment, but he knew it, but he, it was the right thing to do. So he did it. Raising, Some taxes in the 1990 budget deal, he knew at the time, he said to his diary, I'll probably be dead meat, but -hmm. it's the right thing to do. And he signed uh, incredibly far-reaching legislation that drove the Gingrich-led base crazy chiefly, the Americans with Disabilities Act. Can you imagine a Republican president today signing a bill that would change every building in America? Right. And he knew that it was going to hurt him. Uh, And so when you look at his life holistically, what you see is a ferociously ambitious man, but he knew why he was ambitious. He Mm -hmm. knew what he was ambitious for and i i sometimes like to say about him i didn't fall in love with him but i came to love him
0: mm-hmm. apropos to our discussion democracy is a is a uh, messy imperfect kind of uh, process but i i i completely Embrace what you're saying. I mean, you can't get to the presidency. I don't excuse some of the things that they did in that campaign, but you can't get to the presidency without being ferociously ambitious. Uh, and it is a question of what you're ambitious for. And we have an example now of what happens when your ambitions exactly. are limited to your own personal aggrandizement. You raise the issue of of faith, and I know that this is you've written about it. You've written mm-hmm. books about it, and you mentioned you're teaching at the same place where John. Uh, Lewis attended. Talk to me about that, because there is um, among elites, and you are a figure who elites look to. You you are considered among the elite in this country. <laughs> there is a kind of there is a kind of disdain for faith. No, I, I mean you 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 shake your head, but I, I you know look at um there there is a kind of more secular nature to zip codes like where I'm sitting in here in New York or sure you know, sure and then and uh, and t- talk to me about faith in your life yeah and faith as you see it um, as part of
1: uh, the larger
0: journey of a
1: country yeah. and a society well I think it's vital um, I, I shook my head a little bit because i I think it's easy I think it's easy to overstate uh, that somehow or another, uh, and I know you're not saying this, but but no, no, it, th- it probably is easy, and I probably just did it. <laughs> yeah, but 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 I think it's important to. I mean, we we have, you know, in the presidential election uh, this week, we have a devout practicing Catholic, and he's the Democrat, right? And uh, so I I think that it's there are faith is and a factor in the disposition of a lot of voters who have found President Trump to be uh, appealing. It is one of the great mysteries to me, except it's kind of not that much of a mystery. What I really think it is, and Elizabeth Diaz wrote about this really well in the Times not long ago, is there is a streak of evangelical Christianity that enjoys being persecuted. That is, they find drama in the replaying the New Testament tensions that they are an aggrieved minority in a country and in a culture that is arrayed against their beliefs. I do not share that, uh, view. Uh, I think that, um, I am a Christian, I'm a sacramental Christian, I'm an Episcopalian, there's six of us left. Uh, I say my prayers, I uh, would be disappointed if my children were not to uh, continue in in the faith. Um, I do believe that faith and reason are the two wings that we need to to take flight, uh, to torture that metaphor a little bit.
0: Well, let me just stop you for a second
1: and ask you, for you
0: personally— for you personally what does faith what does it provide what what role does it play in your life
1: I believe in the faith of my fathers and it to me it invests the earthly journey with divine origins and significance that there is an order beyond time and space that has found manifestation within time and space in acts of love and worship of a, a greater good, which is God. Uh, and it, it is, takes human experience and is the single best tool I know against the besetting sin of narcissism. That is, if my view, my Christianity is that we live in a world that is fallen and sinful and frail and fallible, and that a series of events in time and space showed us a way to move as close to a greater and empowering good as we can in a fallen world. But I also believe that faith requires action, and that reaching out is a fundamental commandment. There's a—you know, the commandment found in Leviticus, repeated by Jesus— is love your neighbor as yourself? Who the hell wants to do that? You know, you're my friend. I wish well, you well. I but do it I love on your neighbor? You? But yeah, exactly. But do I love <laughs> you? Do I love you as much as myself? No. Uh, but you know, I but that's why it's so radical. That's why it's so revolutionary. And I've argued it in print and in the the John Lewis book in particular. Is that? The religious tradition in which I was raised offers us, I think, a marvelous road forward to a more inclusive and just and fairer country, because I think if we spend a little more time focusing on the Sermon on the Mount than the Supreme Court, we would begin to reorient and see our public policy choices differently. And that's why I wanted to write about John because John was as religious a person in American public life as we have ever known. And yet there are millions and millions of people who are supporters of this president who I suspect don't see him that way. A a final point on this. I mean, it is,
0: it is before you get to your final point, it is, you know, when you talk about faith as a, as the antidote to narcissism, mm-hmm. and then you consider that the that um, you know, President has such so, strong support among mm-hmm. uh, evangelicals, uh, despite his his narcissism and you know his ir- irreligiosity. Uh, it, it is a kind of stunning juxtaposition.
1: It's one of the most amazing elements of this time, and we'll be writing about it and thinking about it forever. And it's going to look if, if, and if Vice President Biden becomes President Biden, a huge part of the opposition to him in a very organized and public way is going to come from that community starting tomorrow. Right. Right. It's not going to take this, is and get ready. The most spoken word of the last. 10 years has been trump it is highly possible that the most spoken word of the next four years if biden wins is going to be socialism mm-hmm. and and i and and what socialism means in people's minds is it means their money is going out of their pockets and somehow or another the government is toppling statues of jesus right there's there's a kind of socialism and secularization are two uh Uh, caricatures in people's minds. And that's going to be a big fight. What I hope to do is present myself in whatever forum I happen to be in and say, look, I believe that God created the heavens and the earth. I believe that Jesus was crucified, died and was buried. And on the third day he rose again in accordance with the scriptures and ascended into heaven, and sitteth on the right hand of the Father, and will come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead. I believe what you believe. But I also believe that Jesus taught us to love and not to hate and to think and not to reflexively react. And I would argue, to go to your point a few minutes ago, I would argue that at least it gives me a chance to be heard
0: mm-hmm
1: so i i just i i want a place at that table and that's that's and that that's part of what my faith quite directly tells me to do my to whom much is given much is expected so let's end with this
0: uh you've done so many things in your life um uh, you're obviously mission driven uh you care a lot about this country uh do you do you ever see yourself serving in public life? I
1: um, it's a great question. Uh, I have thought about it. I live in Tennessee, so it seems unlikely <laughs> that my you could, neighbors you know, would. The, the the country's changing. Yeah, man, I know, you know. I know. I I believe in being uh, being open to all possibilities. I really do. If I thought. Um, If I thought I would be good at it, I would – and that I could do good, uh, I would certainly consider it. Uh, What I have also found in in middle age, though, is that knowing what you're good at is the beginning of wisdom. And so, for instance, um, because of this summer, because of George Floyd, because of Breonna Taylor, because of Jacob Blake – uh, and the conversation that you were talking about about the realization of what it was like to be in in someone mm-hmm. else's shoes. What I decided to do, and I thought very hard. I mean, what is it? I, what is what can I, I'm a I'm a boring white male Southern Episcopalian. Things work out for me in this country. So, but what what have I got that could help? And that's when I picked up the phone and. Ask John Lewis's alma mater if they needed a, a free teacher because that's what I do, right? I talk to people about faith and history and politics. Uh, I know how to do it. And I, f- I do feel to whom much is given, much is expected. And I've been given so much that, you know, I do want to act as well as speak. Uh, it just so happens that in my case, talking and teaching is the way action takes place. If public you know, look if 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 there were an opportunity, it would be uh, it would be profligate of me to to say no on the front end.
0: Well, in the meantime, people can uh, listen to your uh, podcast. It was said uh, in which you uh, convey some of the great uh, and inspiring words in history.
1: I should say though that if I were to run, I would only do so if you would come run the campaign <laughs> well have you have you worked in Tennessee? I
0: did years ago in a mayor's race down there, but john we' we'll, we'll'll we'll, we'll dust off the old apparatus if the time comes <laughs> and we'll, we'll see what happens and the other uh, podcast is Hope Through History um, both well worth uh, listening to as all your works are worth reading. John Meacham. Really,
1: a pleasure to be with you. It's fun, fun. I, I am, as you know, I'm a huge admirer. I, uh, you, uh, you're one of the few people. You don't have to respond to this, but there are only a handful of people uh, who do what you do for a living, who genuinely changed the course of the country, and you did it for the better. So I'm always grateful That's, to you for that. You. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to the Axe Files brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Jeff Fox, Hannah McDonald, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN,
1: including Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu.